Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. It's PNN for Sunday, October the 11th. 2020. There are just 23 days left until the election. Do you have your voting plan? Are you registered to vote? We're going to be talking about all things having to do with voter registration and uh, things about the election. But we also have tonight, we've got Rick Spiezak with Dennis Campbell from across the pond, and they are going to have a chat about all things liberal, while Janine Moloff this week will focus on uh, the present evil inequities in our healthcare system during the pandemic. She says Trump and other politicos have government-funded healthcare, like you know we just saw Trump take off and have his presidential suite at uh, Walter Reed. Um, but those of us, you know, those plebes, us guys down here on Earth, uh, most of us are losing our jobs, have lost our health care. And if we were, if we did think we had COVID, we didn't, we don't have a place to go. We can't see a doctor. Um, meanwhile, you know, people like Chris Christie are just checking themselves into the hospital uh, just to see, let's just see what's going on. They just check themselves in. Um, it, pro tip, you can't do that. As a normal person, you cannot walk up to a hospital and just check yourself in and uh, get, get them to look under the hood. That's that's not the way things work, unless you're Chris Christie or Donald Trump or, you know, somebody with a lot of money or et cetera and so on. So Jenny Moloff on the Justice Report tonight will be going through these inequities. And I will not go off on a tangent on that just yet, although I am, as you can tell, ready to. Um, holy crap, there's just a lot to talk about tonight. Um, but let's get started off with this real quick. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous sense representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. Daughtersofisis.com. Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's daughtersofisis.com. And do go down there if you're in the neighborhood. Mention PNN. You'll get a free sample from the apothecary. I love this place. Uh, please, please check it out. And also know that um, if you uh, have something to advertise, hit us up. We will uh, um, get the word out. We will mention you and talk about your stuff and run, run a clip, you know, the whole advertising thing. We do that here. Um, okay. So, you know, we've got, we get this thing that we do every week. We call it the weekly beat. This is, this is what it is. got the beat the beat is what's going on and this week uh, with 23 days left until the election and uh, Joe Biden leading in the national polls by eight points um, thought we might you know 
have a look at how things are going on the ground. So the first thing I thought is uh, where were things last year? Now, let's be real. National polls do not mean a whole lot with regard to how we actually elect people, president in the United States, because we have the electoral college and, you know, you, you have to factor in super extra amounts of, of electoral power for teeny tiny states with very few conservative people. So, you know, once you factor those folks in and everything gets uh, reshuffled, then you, you get a different outcome. So for reality check, I thought I would look back at the Real Clear Politics polling from 2016, from this week, from, you know, approximately what uh, – October the 5th or 6th until the 10th. And I'm looking at these numbers right now. We've got uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll had Clinton up by 11. Fox News had Clinton up by 7. Uh, uh, the previous, a previous NBC Wall Street Journal poll had Clinton up by 9. Reuters, Clinton by 7. Uh, Rasmussen, Clinton by five, YouGov, Clinton six. You get the idea. We're in about the same territory. The trend lines uh, continued on until about the middle of October. Clinton by 10 with the Boston Globe. Then we have Clinton by 12 with Monmouth at, uh, on the 14th of October. Well, then we start to see something odd happen. We start to see Clinton's numbers go down uh, fairly precipitously because you got Clinton by 12. And then just a few days later, YouGov has Clinton up by only four. And then you've got NBC News reporting that their poll has Clinton up only by five, whereas they had her up by 11. Um Here's one, uh, IBD, is that like, uh, that, that's, I, IBD sounds like something that makes your, your stomach hurt. Uh, but the IBD TIPP tracking poll had Clinton up by only one point uh, the, the following week. This must have been the week that uh, Comey went out and said that they were still going to investigate Clinton. And then, and then it continues to go down. We've got Clinton by four, by one, by one, by six, by one, by three. And then the first one, ABC, Washington Post tracking on October 27, Trump up by one point nationally. And that should have been, should have been a wake-up call. But these polls continued on until Election Day with Clinton up by about three, four, six points. The only other time Trump showed up as winning in the national polling was, again, the IBD TIPP tracking and had him up by two. So it probably says something about how these different organizations were weighting the, uh, their, their polling. Um, and, of course, we know what happened. We know what happened on Election Day there. So we've got this year we've got. Right now, in the last few weeks, Joe Biden has led uh, Donald Trump by a fairly consistent eight-point average in national polls and has maintained leads in more than enough battleground states to win the Electoral College, um, including 
according to the story, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all states that Trump won in 2016. However, these polls do not take into account voter registration. And the story goes on to talk about Uh, And this is uh, NBC News, David Wasserman, who is also uh, the House editor for the Cook Political Report. So this is um, legit. This is not partisan reporting. And I think when we talk about voter registration and we talk about polling, sometimes we fall into a trap of um, reaching for polls and reaching for data that uh, confirms our bias. There's bias confirmation, uh, confirmation bias in the way that we tend to seek out our own information. Uh, So let's have a look at this story. It starts out talking about that um, polling advantage. And then uh, it says there are signs that Trump's ground operation is paying off when it comes to registering new voters in key states. The Trump campaign has boasted that it's knocked on more than a million doors in a week, but there's no way. There's absolutely no way to to check that, to fact check that. There's no reason actually to believe anything, of course, that the Trump campaign says. But that there it is. They say they've been knocking on a million doors. Uh, meanwhile, we know that Joe Biden's campaign only recently, like within like what was it, the last week and a half or so. Uh, started up some minimal field operations and field operations is door knocking, canvassing, that type of thing. Uh, So voter registration uh, of the six states that Trump won by less than four points in 2016, uh, we've got Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, these states permit voters to register by party. So these states give you a good view into how voter registration is going. Uh, And as we know, Florida's voter registration closed out last week. They wanted to, uh, there were uh, progressive groups who were trying to extend the deadline because everything got on the online registration. And I think they got like, you know, a 12 hour, 24 hour reprieve. It wasn't, it, it really wasn't much. Uh, and especially for people who had already been trying to get in and weren't able to get in. That's, that's not a lot of, uh, of help for those folks. Um, the Florida, which is where we're from here. Progressive news network is a Florida type operation. I know, I know we, we, we deal the best we can essentially. But um, uh, Republicans in Florida have had added a net of 195,652 registered voters uh, so far, and Democrats have added 98,362. Okay. During the same period in 2016, Republicans added a net of 182,983 registrants, and Democrats had registered 163,571. In 2016, Trump prevailed in Florida by just 112,911 votes, even in heavily blue Miami-Dade County, where Hillary Clinton beat Trump by 29 points in 2016, Republicans added a net of 22,986 additional 
additional voter registrations uh, between uh, March and the end of August compared to only 11,142 for Democrats. So right there, you know, here's, here's the numbers to remember is in the state of Florida, Republicans added uh, essentially 196,000 new voters, while Democrats only added about 98,000. So there's 100,000 new registration advantage for the Republicans. Uh, the uh, no party affiliation voters in Florida, the NPAs, uh, that registration has increased 69,848. So who knows which way those independents are going to go. Generally, it goes about half and half because you've got conservative independents and you have progressive independents. And then, you know, I guess people fight over, you know, which, which way to pull them. Uh, both of these numbers with regard to 2016 should give us a little bit of pause because uh, the Republicans have registered, what is this, like 10, 20, 13,000 more voters since 20, uh, they've outdone themselves by about 13,000. And the Democrats have, instead of putting up 163,000 like they did in 2016, we've only put up 98,000. So, so the Democrats are not doing a very good job, at least in Florida, with regard to voter registration, at least according to Cook Political Report and NBC News. Uh, in Pennsylvania, moving on, in Pennsylvania, Republicans added a net of 135,619 uh, voters, while Democrats only added 50, about 58,000. All right, so that's, that's more than twice. In Pennsylvania, it's more than twice as many new voters that Republicans have registered. Uh, between April 2016 primary and the November 2016 general election, Republicans in that cycle had put up 175,000 new registrants and Democrats had added 155,000 new registrants. Okay, so again, you see in Pennsylvania that the Democrats are are missing their 2016 benchmark by about 100,000 new registrants in both Pennsylvania and Florida. Uh, so moving on, North Carolina, Republicans added a net of approximately 84,000 voters. And um, Democrats added 38,000 new voters. Uh, in North Carolina, the group of voters who added the most new registrations are independents or no party affiliation. They added 100,000, just pretty much 100,000 new voters. During the same period in 2016, Republicans had added only 54,000 new registrants, and Democrats had added uh, about 39,000 new registrants, whereas independents in North Carolina went up by 141,000 new registrants in 2016. So again, the numbers 
uh, cycle over cycle, 2016 compared to 2020, again in North Carolina, we're not seeing we're not seeing a, a good momentum here for the Democrats. We're we're seeing a, a, some potential trouble if things start to go sideways on election night. Uh, people might be talking about uh, voter registration and new voters. Uh, tipping tipping the scales, at least in these swing states. In Arizona, Democrats, it, this is the only place where, where Democrats have out-registered Republicans. Uh, in Arizona, Democrats put up about 31,000 new registrations to uh, 29,000 new registrations for Republicans. And... Uh, uh, the story goes on, and you know, here's the here's here's the main piece of this. Here's the takeaway: uh, in Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, Republicans have steadily been closing the registration gap for years as older, rural, and conservative voters who used to affiliate with Democrats either die or formally switch their registrations to GOP. In each of these states, several counties that voted strongly for Trump have overwhelmingly. Uh, Democratic voter registration advantages. So they're drilling down further into uh, the uh, geolocation of uh, of the registration. So they're 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 having to go down into um, into counties to find where uh, Democrats are beating Republicans with regard to voter registration. So that's where they're trying to find the good news. And then they say, here's the bad news. Privately, several Democratic strategists are deeply disturbed by their party's failure to keep pace with its registration successes in 2016 and fault the Biden campaign's lack of in-person outreach for the lag. Now, we know that um, because of coronavirus that the Biden campaign has opted to uh, keep a low profile. You know, they don't want they don't want to expose the candidate to uh, to uh, the virus. They don't want to um, have him out in the public eye too much because he's gaff prone. Um, but I but I think that the that the larger concern is um, is having alignment with your rhetoric and action. And you know, rhetoric on the Democrat side has been. Uh, you got to wear masks. You got to be careful. You got to do social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And then you contrast that with uh, uh, Donald Trump, who just yesterday came down to the villages, where all of these seniors, who are already—if you're a senior—you are already in a high-risk group demographic for catching the coronavirus. And you know, all of these seniors packed in together. About maybe a quarter of them were wearing masks, and uh, you know they were shoulder to shoulder to uh, to uh, attend a Trump rally, to a tr- to attend a rally by somebody who is actually has COVID. Uh, so the absurdities in Florida just just keep packing up. Uh, today, Trump's voter registration edge alone won't be nearly sufficient to offset the leads. Biden is posting in polls of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and probably Arizona. But if the race tightens or there's a substantial polling error, substantial polling error, which is something we know about in Florida with regard to uh, the uh, 2018 with 
Andrew Gellum and Bill Nelson, there were rampant polling errors in, in Florida. Polls showed that Andrew Gellum was, was easily going to win. Uh, and, uh, and of course, when campaigns are using that polling information to make decisions on where to put resources and assets, they apparently made some wrong decisions. Uh, and also, one of the biggest wrong decisions, just a small tangent here, one of the biggest wrong decisions I think that people made in 2018 with regard to that cycle was we had a major voter protection situation at the end uh, where you know, people were having to uh, examine ballots and um, uh, cure ballots and people who were attached to campaigns and that's the um, professional progressive groups. That's a lot of people who are the, most of the consultants with the um, democratic party. They had already booked their get out of town time. Uh, this happens every cycle. You get to about, you know, the week after election and people have booked tickets and they're going places and they're, and they're vac vacationing because they're tired after having worked a year or so and having a big push towards election day. But at least in Florida since 2000, since the election in 2000, people should be a little bit, uh, we should leave our schedules open a little bit because folks could have really used the help down in South Florida to cure ballots. Okay. That's, that's my tangent on that. Um, if the race tightens or there is a substantial polling error, Trump's superior growth um, in the base could make a difference in a few tight states and call into question why the Biden campaign chose to forego hitting the streets. So that's it on the uh, on the voter registration front. Um, that's not good. OK. The fact that we've got national polling that shows Biden up by eight points, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, like I said, national polls don't mean a whole lot because that's not the way that the Electoral College works. The Electoral College uh, takes those numbers and shuffles them up. So as we saw with Clinton, even though she was leading in the national polls right up to Election Day and most of them by about four to six points, she still lost. And it's because she lost in key swing states. Uh, hopefully that's not going to happen this time around, but you know, we, we shall see. Um, things, uh, things can happen between now and election day. And one of the things that folks were um, expecting to happen, at least Republicans were expecting to happen this week had to do with Russiagate and with the Durham report. So let's take a breath and come back in just a second and talk about the Durham report.
Okay, so a lot of people this week were talking about QAnon going nuts about uh, the fact that there was some declassified notes from John Brennan from 2016 uh, having to do with the Clinton campaign's collusion operation. And Donald Trump tweeted out that it was time to indict people. It was, Let's bring criminal charges against everybody. I mean, he had this long list of people. Uh, to bring charges against, I believe Comey, Brennan, I think he even named Biden in this, and the uh, depart the DOJ had a press conference set up for 11 a.m. I think it was on Monday, and uh, a lot of folks thought, "Oh my gosh, this is it! This is going to be the Durham report." Uh, the Durham report is, by the way, is. Uh, the Trump administration's and Bill Barr's uh, criminal investigation into what happened with the uh, Russiagate situation going back to 2016. And um, I'm, I feel like not a lot of people are aware that there is another investigation going on. It's kind of been happening in the background. And I think that, again, with confirmation bias, I think that Folks on the uh, center left and further down the line uh, towards the, the, the real left are not as cognizant of what's going on in that area as we have been what has been going on in the mainstream idea of Russiagate, which you could uh, tune in to MSNBC and uh, learn all about that for about three years. Um, so this week, uh, DNI declassified handwritten notes from John Brennan, Brennan, uh, the 2016 CIA referral on the Clinton campaign's collusion operation. Now, this is a lot more interesting than it sounds. This sounds like kind of dry and a little bit inside baseball. But what's what's happened here is that um, Bill Barr has let Donald Trump know that the Durham report is not going to be ready before the election. So there's not going to be a Comey surprise like there was, at least that's what they're saying now, that there's not going to be a Comey surprise like there was in 2016, which I still think uh, is what really did Clinton in. Um, I, I mean, she was she was not a good campaigner. She wasn't a very um, active campaigner and definitely didn't get herself or her team into the blue wall states the way that she should have. Um, but when Comey came out two weeks before the election and said uh, that Hillary Clinton's emails are still under investigation and he had this like little other piece about uh, the uh, Wiener, Anthony Weiner's laptop, that really affected people. Yeah. It's not going to affect politicos. It's not going to affect folks who are like listening to this show or who are involved in politics to the degree that, um, that anyone in my kind of tribe is, but it is going to affect people who are kind of low information and they just kind of get their news a little bit here, a little bit there, and they kind of tune in and they kind of tune out when you've got a big 
hit like that, you know, where it's the director of the FBI saying, uh, Hillary Clinton's not out of the woods. We're still investigating her two weeks before the election. I think that had impact. You know, there's, uh, in my opinion, there's not a good way to pull for that. There wasn't a good way to pull for that at the time. It's just something that gets woven into folks general approach to how they are thinking about the election. And I think that's where um, Clinton lost a lot of her advantage. So this year, Bill Barr is telling everybody that that's just not going to happen. We're not doing that this year. We're not doing the report. It's not getting released. But they did release uh, these these notes. And these notes are, are pretty interesting. And uh there's there's a big push to do more with with what's going on here. So let's let's go through this. Here's an article by Sean Davis from the Federalist. And um, listen, I I make an attempt to a, at least with a more respectable uh, outlets, I make an attempt to see what other folks are talking about outside my tribe, just so that just so that we don't get blindsided. That's that's part of what we should be doing. So <clears throat> the Federalist is not where I, you know, generally get most of my news, but it's really one of the few places that has covered this actual story. And I'm sure as hell not going to cover anything that's written by someone like Town Hall or the Daily Caller or Red State or anything like that, Breitbart. This is one of the few, um, this is actually the article that all those other are outlets wrote their pieces off of. So so let's have a look at this as a primary source. It says top intelligence officials were so concerned heading into the 2016 election that the Russians were aware of and potentially manipulating Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's plans to smear Donald Trump as a Russian agent, that they personally briefed President Barack Obama on the matter, and this is according to newly declassified CIA documents um, and officials who requested that the FBI investigate Russian knowledge of the Clinton campaign's collusion smear operation. That just sounds like a word salad. But the basics here is that this is a complete reversal. All right. So whereas the original Russiagate collusion thing was was that. Hillary Clinton was in the campaign was making the claim that Donald Trump was colluding with Russia and Russia was trying to help Donald Trump. The claim they're making here is that the Russians were feeding the Hillary Clinton campaign information on Donald Trump that was bogus and, and that the Russians were actually running an op on Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is this is like uh, worthy of a, of movie treatment. I think uh, newly declassified handwritten notes from former CIA director John Brennan show that the U.S. intelligence community knew in 2016 that Russian intelligence was actively monitoring and potentially injecting information into Clinton's anti-Trump collusion narrative. 
The intelligence concerning Russia's knowledge of the Clinton campaign's plans was so concerning to Brennan and other national security officials that they personally informed Obama on the matter in the Oval Office in the summer of 2016. I'm going to come back to that in a second because that Uh, summer of 2016 is very important. The handwritten notes from John Brennan were declassified by National Director of Intelligence, DNI, John Ratcliffe, and provided to Congress on Tuesday afternoon. This is the Ratcliffe thing. This hit on Tuesday. Uh, I mean, uh, that news conference with DOJ was probably on Wednesday. So it was probably after this. Anyway, according to the declassified notes, Brennan and the U.S. intelligence community knew months prior to the 2016 election that the collusion smear was the result of a campaign operation hatched by the campaign of Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. All right. They're, you know, pushing back and making that making the allegation on Hillary Clinton, which is almost it's almost a complete reversal not quite and they say here's a quote we're getting additional insight into russian activities from redacted brennan's handwritten notes state this is this is from his handwritten notes and they go on to say quote cite alleged approval by hillary clinton on july 26 of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services. So what this is saying is that on July 26th, Brennan sat down with President Obama and gave him this information. That's, that's, That's really all this is saying. Now, I went back in my... Uh, Russia file because I've been following the story from the very beginning and the very first story that I saw appear in the media what came out on July 24 if this meeting happened on July 26 the very first story ever was July 24 which was uh, I think the first day or the second day was the first day of the Democratic National Convention in 2016. And this was a little piece that ran in the New York Times. And it just, it it, it was really sparse. All it said was, hey, there's all these rumors about Russia having something to do with the election and we'll keep you posted. It was this weird little teaser. And there were two reporters who were attached to the story as it appeared in 2016 on July 24th. And it just seemed very odd to me that it would take two reporters to um, to uh, write three paragraphs that said basically nothing. But uh, we'll come back to that later. Uh, so the CIA and other agencies also suspected early on that many of the key claims underpinning the collusion narrative could themselves be the product of deliberate collu- uh, Russian disinformation. All right. So again, we're it, it's a it's a it's a mirror image. It's pushing back. It's it's taking what the Clinton campaign was saying and saying, no, you guys were actually being played by the Russians. Um, and 
When the Clinton campaign hired Christopher Steele, a foreign agent in the pocket of a sanctioned Russian oligarch to concoct a dossier of allegations against Trump, the primary source and the most salicious, salicious, that's like delicious, salacious, Good Lord. Salacious and damning allegations of treasonous collusion came from a suspected Russian spy named Igor uh, Danchenko. Last month, Attorney General William Barr informed Congress that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, was so concerned with Danchenko that he had been dubbed the uh, primary subsource by Clinton campaign subcontractor Christopher Steele in his thoroughly debunked Steele dossier that had previously deemed him a national security threat and investigated him to determine if he was a Russian spy. The Bureau called off the investigation once Danchenko left the United States and was no longer within the purview of the the FBI's domestic counterintelligence mission. That's that's really interesting stuff. Uh, so we already know. We already know that that the Steele dossier was uh, um, souped up or sexed up or tarted up as as a uh, uh, someone I used to know used to say about things it was tarted up um, by this uh, Danchenko uh, person that they got drunk together and they uh, compiled a bunch of notes that were basically, well, this might have happened. This could have happened. Well, what if this happened? And it just sort of, it was like uh, that Dr. Seuss story about uh, what happened on what I saw ha- that happened on um, Mulberry street and and the light the, the the story just kept getting more and more outrageous until they got to the thing with the prostitutes in the hotel room in Bosco that Obama had stayed in uh, participating in water sports. Oh my God, it's just such I, I just can't believe that became a part of the national conversation. Anyway, um, the CIA remains convinced that Russian intelligence sincerely believed as early as the summer of 2016 that the Clinton campaign launched its anti-Trump collusion smear operation to distract from Clinton's email scandal. Hmm, maybe. In October 2017, the top lawyer for Clinton's campaign and the national uh, the, and the DNC confessed publicly that he had personally hired. Uh, the opposition firm Fusion GPS paid Steele to peddle allegations that Trump was a secret Russian agent working on behalf of Vladimir Putin. Now, set aside set aside the uh, the tarted up language there. This is stuff that we know. And oh my God, people don't do themselves uh, any favors by overinflating the the language when they write this sort of thing. Ratcliffe also uh, declassified Tuesday portions of a formal CIA investigative referral. Now, this is this is really interesting to me. They declassified portions of a CIA investigative referral sent on September 7, 2016, to fired former CIA director James Comey and fired former counterintelligence officer Peter Strzok, asking them to investigate the Clinton campaign's anti-Trump collusion smear operation in light of Russia's knowledge of the plan and likelihood that it could be tainted by deliberate Russian disinformation. Again, it's a total reversal. You know, the, the, the CIA is now asking the FBI, hey, would you look in 
to, you know, maybe some kind of uh, fuckery with regard to why this is all happening all all at once. And uh, Strzok and Comey just killed, just killed the idea. They didn't want anything to do with it. They refused to initiate an investigation. Quote, per FBI verbal request, CIA provides the below examples of information uh, about the Crossfire Hurricane Fusion Cell and what they've gleaned to date. This is from the, mem- from the memo. An exchange uh, between redacted, redacted and redacted, discussing U.S. presidential campaign, uh, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's approval of a plan concerning uh, Donald Trump and Russian hackers hampering U.S. elections as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. Um, and it goes on to say, uh, goes on to say that uh, this may not have been limited to the FBI, but may have included the use of CIA assets and surveillance capabilities, raising troubling questions about whether a nation's top spy service has weaponized, was weaponized against a U.S. political campaign. Now that, I think, is the center of, of all of this. So, If, let's say if, if the campaign of Hillary Clinton, the Clinton campaign, uh, engaged folks of the FBI, Comey and Strzok, to engage in this investigation, and then when the CIA came back around and said, hey, we need to actually look into where this started and whether there's any uh, meat on the bone, and they declined, then it looks like you've got a problem within the FBI uh, regarding them getting involved in political campaigns, in presidential campaigns. Now, um, I don't think that I don't know. At this point, I feel like nobody should really have a dog in this hunt. I mean, I, of course, the conservatives really want really want the the Durham report to come out and really want to you know hammer this stuff home. I think that I think that that what's important here is that at some point we get to the truth because we don't want the next president of the United States to be hampered by our intelligence services. I mean, that much should be clear to anybody that it is not a good thing if the uh, FBI and the CIA are getting involved in big political campaigns. We just do not need that. And honestly, as, um, as injured as our political system is at this point, uh, I don't know if we could. I don't know if we could withstand that kind of um, that that kind of messing around. Now there was something that, that caught my eye earlier this week, and it relates uh, kind of tangentially to this. And it's that um, Nancy Pelosi and her husband took out a big stake in CrowdStrike. I remember CrowdStrike was the company that was also hired by Perkins Coie who hired Fusion GPS and generated the steel report. Um, CrowdStrike was the, the company that 
looked at the DNC servers and said, first they said, oh, well, we have evidence that Russia exfiltrated uh, the emails from the server. And then they backtracked on that immensely. I mean, backtracked it to the point where you just can't even say that that's what they said anymore. So the Pelosi's have bought between 500,000 and a million dollars stock shares of, of CrowdStrike Holdings. And this was reported by uh, Political Money Line, which looks at independent expenditures and different uh, interests in, um, in the American political scene. And I just happened to catch that by just, just by accident. And then uh, Aaron Maté uh, picked up the ball and wrote a piece for Real Clear Investigations that tells this story in a in a longer form. So you got this new information about Pelosi buying this new stock. Um, that is a lot of investment in this particular company. And, uh, and he goes on in this article to discuss why that's important. So uh, I'll put this in the show notes um, tonight and make this available so y'all can have a look at this. But what I want to call your attention to is, how CrowdStrike made their claim and then walked it back. Uh, so, so the first claim, uh, CrowdStrike President Sean Henry, who led the team that, uh, that remediated the DNC breach and blamed Russia for the hacking, uh, is now a, a, a guest, a frequent guest, and an, an analyst at MSNBC. Uh, which makes perfect sense. Uh, and uh, and the co-founder, whose name I can never pronounce right, but it, it's Alperovich. I think I think I'm getting closer there. Alperovich, co-founder and former te- um, chief technical officer, CTO, is a former non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council is the group that is responsible for uh, censoring Facebook, for fact-checking, I guess, but, but mostly censoring. It's a Washington organization that lobbies for a hawkish posture towards Russia. That's just, just basically what the Atlantic Council has been doing since their inception. Campaign disclosures show that CrowdStrike um, – contributed $100,000 to the Democratic Governors Association in uh, 2016 and 2017. The firm has multiple conflicts of interest in the Russia investigation, uh, coinciding with a series of embarrassing disclosures that call into question its technical reliability. In early 2017, CrowdStrike was forced to retract its allegation that Russia was hacked, had hacked the Ukrainian military equipment. Do you remember this? That uh, that uh, there was this big claim that Russia had hacked Ukrainian uh, military equipment, and now Ukraine couldn't use their tanks or their this and that or their rocket launchers or something because they'd been hacked by Russia. That was a claim made by CrowdStrike that they had absolutely no evidence for. They just threw it out there, essentially. During the FBI's investigation of the DNC breach, Crouch 
never provided direct access to the servers. A lot of people made a big deal about this. That why is a private company the only ones that have access to these servers? That everybody, uh, that, that uh, you know, everybody who is doing the forensic investigation over at FBI should be looking at this. It shouldn't be CrowdStrike, you know, taking an image of the server and providing that. That's that's not chain of custody that that anyone should should recognize. Um, Despite multiple requests that came from officials all the way up to then-director James Comey, the FBI had to rely on CrowdStrike's own images of the server, and uh, Justice Department officials later acknowledged that uh, what was delivered by CrowdStrike was incomplete and redacted. All right? Um, So what's happened with with CrowdStrike is that – Fast forward to later in 2017, in October, uh, according to the Senate report, Sean Henry claimed that CrowdStrike was, quote, able to see some exfiltration of the types of files that had been fetched, but not the file's content. So he's claiming there, seemingly, that he could see Russia taking stuff off of the server. But then, in, uh, in testimony under oath, uh, he 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 retracted that, and he retracted it in a in a pretty spectacular way. Interrupted and prodded by his attorneys to correct his answer during a uh, Senate hearing, right before the intervention of uh, CrowdStrike counsel, Henry had falsely asserted that he knew when Russian hackers had exfiltrated the stolen information. Uh, This is an exchange between Adam Schiff and Sean Henry. Adam Schiff says, do you know the date in which the the Russians exfiltrated the data from the DNC? Sean Henry, I do. I have to just think about it. I don't know. I mean, it's in our report. I I think that the committee has it, Adam Schiff. And to the best of your recollection, when would that have been? Henry. This is Sean Henry responding. Council just reminded me that as it relates to the DNC, we have indications that data was exfiltrated, but we do not have concrete evidence that data was exfiltrated from the DNC. <laughs> it's like we do, but we don't. Um, we have indi- indicators, um, but we don't have actual evidence. Henry then improbably argued that in the absence of evidence showing emails leaving the DNC server, Russian hackers could have taken individual screenshots of each of the 44,053 emails and 17,761 attachments that were not ultimately put out by WikiLeaks. Well, something's, something's up with CrowdStrike. Now, I went back and I looked at how much government contracting CrowdStrike has done uh, in total over the last however long they've, they've been working with the government. I found that over their entire lifespan of having government contracts, there's been maybe two years where they've been, uh, where they had government contracts and those government contracts come to about $657,000 in total. That is not a lot of money in government contracting. Let me just tell you that that's less than a million dollars. And it's over a few years for someone to put, half a million to a million dollars into CrowdStrike, you know, from a, from a prominent Democrat to do that. 
uh, and this is a this is a, 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 a company that ha- has a history of some funny business with other funny business that the DNC was into. Um, to me, that kind of indicates that, that 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 someone is betting on that that when Biden gets into office, that CrowdStrike will be able to do more government contracting or that they will get more business or something. Or maybe it's just, you know, payback. Or maybe she just likes CrowdStrike. Who knows? But I think it's interesting that uh, that all of that kind of kind of came to a head this week. We'll keep an eye on that for you and let you know how how any of this shakes out, if any of it ever does shake out. Uh, real quick before... I take you over to Rick's um, interview, fabulous interview with uh, Dennis Campbell. I want to mention this article that uh, Luke Savage did in um, did in the Atlantic, and it is it is entitled "Why Liberals Pretend They Have No Power." He says, elite politicians invoke the rhetoric of emergency only to behave like those hapless passengers trapped aboard a sinking ship. This is Luke Savage, who is a writer at Jacobin, writing in the Atlantic, really crazy, again, on October 8th. This is another um, piece that, that we have from the 8th of October, which was a busy day in terms of good stuff getting out there. And, you know, his his lead in this, I think, is is really interesting. He says, at a press, press conference in September, uh, Nancy Pelosi fielded questions about the perilous backdrop to November's election, denouncing Donald Trump's refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. We all remember that. You know, it's just this whole back and forth of if he would give up power and yada, yada, yada. And, and you know, I've talked about this before. I don't think, I really don't think that there is going to be a uh, a showdown on that. If there is a showdown, it's going to be over voting. It's going to be over counting the votes. It's going to look like uh, uh, the Gore Bush v. Gore thing. It'll probably go to the Supreme Court. You know that's 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 the way those those things happen. It's not going to be a big showdown with tank tanks in the street. But who knows? It's 2020. You know anything could happen. But I mean, just personally, I am not. I'm not expecting that kind of showdown. And I, I you know, I don't, I don't think uh, Luke Savage is either, but Nancy Pelosi is definitely using that as a, um, a, a talking point and has used that for the last couple of weeks. Uh, she wants to say, she says to Donald Trump, you are not in North Korea and you are not in Turkey. You are in the United States. It is a democracy. So why don't you just try for a moment to honor your oath to office to the constitution and of the United States? Moments later, Pelosi dismissed calls that she would leverage her role as speaker to shut down the U.S. government in an effort to block Trump's incoming nominee for the Supreme Court. Now, you know, we've got this uh, we got this uh, uh, Supreme Court nominee because uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I'm sure people listening to the show remember that when Obama tried to nominate Merrick Garland, who is quite a right-leaning uh, uh, judge. 
and uh, and the Republicans weren't having it. Now the Democrats don't seem to be uh, mounting any kind of fight with that, and uh, and so there was an attempt to leverage. Ruth Bader Ginsburg for electoral purposes, specifically with regard to Amy McGrath, who is running for Senate in Kentucky against Mitch McConnell. Sure, that'd be a peach uh, a Senate seat to turn over. Uh, so would the one in uh, South Carolina with uh, Lindsey Graham. So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, people poured millions of dollars into Amy McGrath's campaign and she is not going to win that campaign. I mean, she's, she's running a terrible campaign and she's not doing well. And then she used that money when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, died. she inexplicably used that money to run pro Trump ads in, uh, in Ohio. It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, in addition to being really funny, it feels like it's been an important thing for liberals to remember. This is uh, from a tweet earlier today. I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, it, it, there is an intersection here with electoral politics and the um, and the politics that we need to be fighting uh, through Nancy Pelosi once people are elected. I mean, you can't tell keep telling people that we got to elect Democrats when we have Democrats that aren't doing anything right now. So back to Nancy Pelosi, the contrast between the two comments were stark. You know, the one comment that uh, you're not in North Korea and you got to honor the constitution. And moments later dismissing calls that she would leverage her role as speaker to shut down the government to uh, block the nominee. Uh, Luke Savage says the first conveyed a of emergency, gravely implying, not without cause, that the very foundations of America's democratic and constitutional order were in danger. The second, particularly if we accept that premise, amounted to nothing less than an abdication of responsibility from one of the country's most powerful figures during a moment of national crisis. He's right, man. A sitting president openly flouting the rules of democracy represents a serious threat on its own. If the prospect of a Supreme Court appointment weeks before an election whose outcome could well be decided by that very body is not an appropriate moment for vigorous opposition, then what is? All right, skipping down a little bit. Um a line from a 2019 CNBC report detailing the overwhelming House approval of Trump's marquee NAFTA ne- renegotiation sums up the assert- absurdity of the posture of senior Democrats. And it says Democrats wanted to show that they can work with Trump only a day after they voted to make him the third president impeached in American history. Determined opposition to Trump has sometimes been so non-existent that Democratic partisans have had to invent it, as with an image of Pelosi during the 2019 State of the Union address that went viral on the entirely spurious grounds that the Speaker had intended for her clapping hands to look sarcastic. (sighs) All right. So, um, 
we've got contradictory posturing by the most powerful liberals in the, in the country. And at the same time, we're being told that there is an existential threat by, by Trump to the Constitution and to the country. Our, our Democrats that are supposed to be fighting for us are doing absolutely nothing. And as a matter of fact, they can't pass his, his bills quick enough when it comes to raising money for giving more money to the military and uh, bailing out uh, big business and not bailing and not doing any kind of stimulus for us little guys, which is, and that's the big thing that's going on today is that Nancy Pelosi is walking away from the table and saying, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with Trump. I don't want to try a, a she doesn't want to give him any kind of victory before the election. And what's hanging in the balance is, you know, all of us plebs down here who could really use uh, another, you know, shot in the arm. You know, folks are, are being kicked out of their houses and apartments, and it's, it's getting really, really ugly. The standard rejoiner is that the American is detached from the political realities of a system that makes changing anything exceptionally difficult. On short-term pragmatic grounds, this argument obviously has a certain force. Pelosi can't single-handedly stop the president from behaving dangerously in advance of November's election any more than Gavin Newsom or Andrew Cuomo can arrest the uh, progress of climate change. Democrats might grind the federal government to a halt to prevent Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court, only to find themselves outflanked by Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. But not to mount a uh, defense of of our position with regard to uh, the Supreme Court, I think is, and I think most people agree, is is much worse. We need transformation on this on on a grand scale. And we thought we were getting that with Obama after the Bush years. I think a lot of us remember that. That uh um that to undo the ravages <clears throat> of the Bush administration, we needed to go in with, you know, hammer and tong and make sure that, you know, people were taken care of and that war criminals were put away. And that none of this stuff like unitary executive um, and the the privileges that uh, that Cheney and Bush and Rumsfeld had put into the executive branch that those were taken care of, and none of that got fixed, not not a bit. We needed we needed an FDR back when Obama was elected, and we got we kind of got a Hoover, and now we've got a Joe Biden who is an even more conservative, you know, participant in the Obama Biden years, you know, he's, he was the, the, um, the right to Obama's left. And, you know, we're going into an election with very low morale because we don't see the Democrats fighting for us in, in, in the house or the Senate. And we don't see our Democratic nominee uh, putting forth any kind of, you know, fire in the belly or talking to the base. Essentially, you know, you saw at the vice presidential debate, you saw that um, 
whatever the Republicans embraced, Kamala Harris was going to embrace even more. And we saw that with, uh, especially with regard to fracking, which is what everyone paid attention to this week. Uh, Transformation on the scale necessary to undo the ravages of the Trump presidency will certainly be difficult to achieve. The fight for larger objectives such as healthcare reform and a green industrial revolution, harder still. But given what the leaders of the 21st century liberalism themselves tell us about the state of things, what's the alternative? There's no reason to surrender when you can fight. And I couldn't agree with that. I couldn't agree with that more. There is absolutely no reason to surrender when you can fight and we need to fight. So, uh, that's uh, that's all I've got for this week, and we'll be right back with Dennis Campbell. Our, our brothers over the seas uh, can provide us some important perspective, since we can't consider any socialist solution, uh, except the ones that we like. Um, but I do want to talk, There's there's a controversy right now about extending uh, worker benefits. And and uh, also there's a, a charming uh, suggestion um, that, uh, that musicians and, and people who are out of work should just retrain. So there's some, some interesting thoughts on your side uh, of the Atlantic. What, what are you hearing about the debate for uh, helping people through this difficult time with jobs evaporating and so much over the old way of life basically being removed. Well, you know, you have to understand that our social network was, I would say, a bit stronger than yours. Um, yeah. All right. And that's being, that's we, being polite. Yeah. Without um, argument. You know, we, we actually have a social safety net. Yeah. And, you know, the only people thus far that have been unprotected are those in the arts and um, certain classes of freelance workers. But, um, you know, our business got a, a bounce back loan and, uh, you know, the terms are 2% on decent amount of money. And that will cushion, he says, knocking wood, you know, the blow of some of the things that, that have happened in other areas. Um, and there are benefits that people can get on a temporary basis if they need them. Um, They tried to say they were going to rush everybody back this month and uh, eliminate uh, any sort of uh, furlough payment. Now they've had to completely reverse themselves because we're now in a second lockdown. And uh, here in Wales, our county had been spared. But then last weekend, uh, last middle middle part of last this this current week, we uh, we joined everybody else. So, um, you know, pretty much. All of the populated areas of Wales are on lockdown. The rural areas are not. Um, and there are parts of, of, of uh, the UK, particularly north of London, the, the northern part, uh, Leeds, Bradford, Manchester area that are also in lockdown. Uh, Scotland is talking about taking much more drastic measures than have been there in the past. So it's it's really starting to um, really starting to show uh that there's a lot of strain. Um, you know, we've had cinemas reopen and then Cineworld has announced they're shutting down 
all of their facilities. I think they have 128 theaters here. Um, and you're seeing that people, even with the government eat out scheme, which was basically, you know, certain nights of the week, other than I think it was Friday and Saturday, um, the government would, would pay uh, 10 pounds of your bill. Uh, you know, so whatever it was through this scheme had some take up. Uh, we had a decent um, third quarter, 2.1% growth, but it's well underneath what was expected. Sure. And it doesn't factor in the fact that, you know, everybody's going back into quarantine and lockdown. So, uh, and, and we don't have the issues that, that, that you have around mask wearing. Um, you know, we're, <laughs> Our government says so it's a good idea. It's a good idea if you do level. it, and people then turn around and do it. And uh, the Welsh government, in this second lockdown, made it mandatory. So you must wear a mask if you're in a store. And you know what? You go into a store, everybody wears a freaking mask. <laughs> you know, you must social distance. They're not quite as good on that. Uh, pubs almost close by 10 p.m., if not earlier. I don't know what they're doing open in the first place. I mean, you, you go past any pub and you see people gathering outside in large groups drinking and you think, well, that's not exactly being um, COVID smart. No. And, <clears throat> no. you know, we, 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 I think, got over our skis here on this side of the, uh, of, of the pond. Um, I know that I was doing many more all outdoor activities with my friends. But, you know, where we live, you can do that. You can go on hikes together in, in groups. Uh, we probably weren't as cautious as we, as we should have been, but we're also all of a certain age. Every one of us is over 50, yeah. okay? Yeah. So we know the risks. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I do have the great honor <laughs> to have the most incredible journalist and uh, author, and uh, I always must say, due to his wit, raconteur, Mr. Dennis Campbell uh, of the uh, of the UK and Wales, precisely. People were saying, "Who the hell is he talking to?" <laughs> yeah, yep, that's right. Well, I, you know, I have learned a little over the years, and and I try to mix it up a little bit. And with someone of your wit, I I do like to give you a little bit ahead there. Oh, um, give me the rope so I can hang myself. <laughs> absolutely. Where are those petards when you need them? <laughs> Let me ask you this. There's talk again about the UK walking out of, of Brexit talks. What are they thinking, Dennis? What are they thinking? They're not thinking, and that's the problem. I mean, you know, COVID has been the, the perfect distraction for them to do nothing. <laughs> and guess what? They did nothing. So now, you know, here we are again, three months away from the end of the world. And, uh, you know, three out of four of us now, 75%, are saying this is a bad idea. Don't do it. And, you know, this government is like lemmings marching over the cliff. They're going to say they have a mandate to get Brexit done. They're not doing anything to make. I mean, they have really messed up with the COVID crisis. They've not done enough to make sure we have enough PPE. They've not done enough sure. I mean, they closed all the Nightingale hospitals, which were the extra hospitals for coronavirus that they put in places like the Excel Center, <clears throat> indoor sports all took place in the Excel Center. Well, that's now a multi-hundred bed hospital for the NHS to handle COVID, but they've not done anything with it. You know, we've got them set up in football stadiums and arenas all over the world, all over the country, excuse me, and we're probably going to need them again, the way things are going. 
So what do you think they mean when they say accept and move on? Uh, accept a no no agreement agreement? Is that is that their thinking? Is that that's the that's the best option they've come up with? I think our government is trying to be a deadbeat dad. <laughs> okay. They're basically trying to say, look, without a deal, we don't have to pay the exit fee, which is about thirty nine billion pounds. It's about fifty million dollars. We don't have to and we'll just do whatever we want to do and screw Europe. Well Europe is saying yeah, rethink that. I mean, we're going to literally have a parking lot at our main port in Dover, which is where, you know, stuff comes over in thousands of lorries a day, trucks, excuse me, a day. And, uh, you know, we're going to have fruit, veg, livestock dying inside of these trucks, you know, not getting to where they need to be in time that they could then be transported to stores. It's going to be a flipping night nightmare in the middle of January when we're in the midst of a COVID rebirth. You're like thinking, God, use your bloody heads here and do the right thing. Don't do this Brexit thing. That's just going to cause chaos everywhere. It would seem that even if the only thing you considered was access to food, access to fresh fruits and vegetables during the winter season, for that reason alone, more sensible points should be made. But... uh, Okay, then let me <laughs> let me go to another topic. Your uh, UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak is about to announce the extension of job support. On the one hand, bravo, the people of the UK are at least getting some kind of consideration. When instead, what we have over here is posturing and uh, the the worried worried right about uh, socialism when we're bailing out anybody but big business. By the way, the chancellor just announced, literally as we're sitting here speaking, that uh, workers at firms forced to close by COVID restrictions will get two-thirds of wages paid for by the government. Wow, that's fantastic. That literally just happened as we started talking. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the thing I like about Europe, okay? Some some say it's socialist, some say it's whatever, but we take care of people, all right? And I think that is a ethos that runs no matter what party you're in, you know, you may try and cut corners, you may try and privatize it and do other things if you're on the right. But I've lived in the Netherlands for six years and now in the UK for 17 years. And at the end of the day, when there's no other choice, we end up doing the right thing. Okay. I mean, you, you were there a couple of years ago when I gave the talk in, in, in uh, Palm Beach uh, talking about the National Health Service. Uh-huh. And the fact that nobody in this country ever goes bankrupt because of medical bills. There's no such thing as medical bills, okay? You have, um, you have a system that is built and was built by a Welshman, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it is designed to take care of the health and safety of our people. And, you know, the, the whole concept is the most acute situations get immediate attention. Everybody else, you take a number and we'll get to you. If it's not an emergency, if it's not acute, you know, a knee replacement, for example, may cause you some pain. But, you know, you get on the list and that list could be six, nine months, a year in length. And then it gets done and it gets done professionally. So I think that that's a you know, I, I always laugh when, when, when I hear Trump or anybody else say we have world-class doctors and world-class solutions and, you know, world-class medical systems. Not if you're poor. Not if you're, not if you're unable to pay for a Cadillac 
insurance policy, then you're not taken care of at all. And I think that wouldn't be allowed to happen here. Yes, there are different outcomes in poorer areas than, than, than in more affluent areas, but not with the level of uh, discrepancy that you see in the United States. And yeah, as I said many times before, with my own medical history, if I still lived in the U.S., you know, now 23 years on, I'd be bankrupt. I wouldn't have been able to pay for a lot of the things that were urgent and necessary from cataracts to urinary tract to all sorts of things. And I just think, you know, I actually sat down before I came out and gave that talk two years ago and just put pen to paper and figured out how much it would have cost to be treated. And, you know, the fact that you know, when I left, you know, you, you spent maybe $300 a month, but you got a great health care system. And now today, you'd have to spend $5,000 before you can even see a penny of health insurance come back in the form of taking care of those bills. And I thought, how the hell does anybody do that? And the simple fact is they don't. Yeah. And they don't take care of themselves. They don't see a doctor when they're sick. And when a situation gets bad, I mean, you know, imagine sitting the parking lot and whether wondering whether or not you can even afford to walk through the door of the emergency room with your sick child. You're sitting there praying and hoping that their fever will go down because there goes couple thousand dollars out of your pocket just walking through the door oh yeah oh absolutely we don't have that here. yeah okay i think and i think that's part of that ethos of we take care of each other and you know i i'm just i'm stunned because i've been here since before 9 11 okay i moved in 1998 when i left the states and i'm stunned of how um 9 11 changed everything you know, it made us more polarized, made us more divided, uh, made a lot of people nastier. And I can't figure out why. And, and it just is, it, that's the most frustrating part of watching this whole thing, you know, is that you've got these camps, you've got these tribes, these ideologies. We, we have these militias, as a matter of fact. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the you know what happened yesterday in 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 Michigan didn't surprise me at all. You know, I'm I'm grateful, touch wood, that nothing happened because these people are batshit crazy, and well, they've you know, got the, guns. The president did suggest that she should meet with them because that would work out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Speaking of things back on this <laughs> side of the water. Uh, I, we I don't to, know we if you naturally a, roam here, don't we? <laughs> well, I have an educated erudite gentleman on the on the line here, and I try to take advantage of that. Let you shine a little. Um, speaking speaking of shine a little, I don't know. Did you get a chance to watch any of the uh, Trump versus Biden or the Pence versus Harris Harris uh, mudfests? Yeah, well, I have to because um, I've been very busy on the BBC this year. I mean, they right. are just. Good. There, there uh, was on. I did my first global gig with them, uh, BBC News and, and and World Service News, and I have to stay on top of of, of the debates and uh, particularly the uh, Biden, the one between Biden and Trump. Yeah. And 
you know, we were talking about COVID-19. We were talking about, uh, you know, all the things that happened there. And, and they, you know, he had just been diagnosed as positive and I, and I went on and did that. And I said, you know, a lot of people are calling it not the coronavirus, rather the karma virus. <laughs> and the, the BC, BBC presenter said, well, that seems a bit harsh for a man who's not doing well. I said, well, you know, I have, while I have some empathy for him, it would be nice to see him have empathy for others. And he's shown that he has none and he has no, you know, compunction about going out and telling his people not to wear masks and having these super spreader events. So, yeah, it's karma. <laughs> Nothing you know a little, little ride in a limo wouldn't hurt, you know? Uh, yeah. And, well, this was before then, so yeah. it got even worse. Yeah. Good. When uh, we listened to that uh, little discussion uh, in service of educating the American electorate on the differences of policy from uh, between Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, I think if there's one thing that we learned, it's that one side has a reasoned and temperate view of the issues ahead. And then there's that screaming guy. And uh, to say that uh, any kind of civil debate was thrown out the door really, really just doesn't doesn't raise it. And do you think he was counseled at all uh, or or was his mania just just completely out of control? Regarding the debate? Yeah. Now, there was a strategy of just talking over. Yeah, well, the strategy, never... that strategy was 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 revealed to be from Chris Christie and Chris Christie and the, the debate prep team. By the way, Chris Christie is now in his sixth sick day fellow too, right. in hospital. Right. And you want to talk about comorbidities. I mean, if Trump is at three spins, he's at four, yeah. you know, in terms of number of pounds. And, and uh, you know, you don't hear a word, which is, you know, after about Not three good. weeks, Herman yeah. Cain, I said, where's Herman Cain? Did he ever get discharged and saw no notice of him in the news whatsoever? So I put out a Google alert and, uh, you know, I, I then began to see all sorts of things coming from his Twitter feed, but they weren't coming from him. Right. And they were saying he was, you know, going to be better and, 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 you know, the, the thing is, is that this whole thing was, was concocted by Christie because they think that because Joe, was a stutterer as a young man, that the way to actually um, get under his skin, perhaps cause stuttering, perhaps cause him to do um, some cognitive things that would make one then question his ability to govern, is to continually interrupt him. And it was like 70, I think, times during the course of that two hours that Trump interrupted Joe Biden. And it never worked to his advantage at all. In fact, he came out looking like an idiot. And I think that's why he doesn't want to do a virtual event or give any more power or control to the folks in the debate to shut off his microphone. You know, and he doesn't want to debate on the 15th because it's a town hall meeting and he might actually have to answer a question from a constituent. So uh, it's not a good situation for him. Everybody says, well, where's Joe? Why is he not doing this? Why is he not doing that? He said, he, I keep saying he doesn't have to. You know, if your opponent's digging a hole, you give him a nice, fresh, sharp shovel, cool glass of water and say, carry on. Just as Obama did during that uh, debate with uh, Romney when he knew Romney had already just screwed himself. Go ahead, Governor. <laughs> and, and speaking of screwing himself, you know, let me ask you to answer this question in, in a media context. OK, yeah. there, there's this favorite turn of phrase that's used a lot in American politics. 
let so-and-so be so-and-so. And, And, uh, you know, there was a counter... Bartlett be Bartlett. Yeah. There was a counter-argument that uh, Mr. Trump would be tempered, that Mr. Trump would gather around the wiser heads and cooler um, temperaments, and and things would be better. And, And I think we see the real Trump at his most honest, if there's such a thing, when he's on Fox, when he's in what he feels is a friendly environment. And we basically heard just the extremities of unhinged paranoia, where he was calling for the arrest and prosecution of Biden and Obama and Clinton. I'm surprised he didn't want to resurrect uh, FDR and Henry Wallace to be arrested, too. When we see Trump at his honest and most bald-faced, what are we seeing here? Oh, you're you're seeing mania. I mean, you know, his... Yeah, this is this is the steroids talking, but this is also Trump talking. I mean, uh, anybody that thought he was going to change, you know, and, and become more <laughs> moderate. Uh, I lived in Florida, you know, when when the art of the deal came out. I, I've met the man. And, you know, this is these were during his partying days in the late 80s. Him and, and Jeffrey. Uh, huh? Him and Jeffrey. Yeah. And, and it's just it's. It's one of those things where you shake the guy's hand and you check to make sure you still have your wallet and your watch, okay? Because it's just he's that slimy a human being that you went, okay, this is weird. And, um, you know, he was at the March of Dimes. I was very much involved with him when I was in South Florida. And uh, he was uh, at one of their big balls, but he was there to uh, sell copies of his book and sign them and, you know, schmooze and meet and greet people. And that's what he was there for. And... I just was not impressed at all, even then. And as we got to know who he was over the that the rest of that decade, it was just a horrible situation. Well, um, let's talk just for a second. You know, it's been announced that uh, Nancy, uh, excuse me, uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Ms. Pelosi, has, has called for a committee to discuss and look at the 25th Amendment as regards the, uh, the uh, clearly under the weather, putting it mildly, uh, President uh, Trump. Um, I don't think, honestly, beyond much of raising a little dust, there much will come from it. But it certainly is a forum to discuss the issues that we all see. Yeah, and and where's Mike Pence? I mean, I know he came back last (laughs) night from, from Arizona and, you know, was supposed to be today in Indiana. But does he have COVID as well? And, you know, somebody was asking, I said, you know, what happens? She says, what happens if both uh, somebody on on Twitter said, what happens if both uh, Trump and Pence die? And I said, Madam President Pelosi, (laughs) that's what happens. You know, she's third or second in line in succession. And these people have been so cavalier (laughs) about this disease and its impact. This super spreader event at the Coney Barrett uh, uh, announcement indoors and outdoors and then he tried to blame it on gold star families and these are people who've lost family members to war okay <clears throat> they've been casualties of war they've already had to suffer and now either they're going to catch covid themselves because they were in the same locked room with this idiot and they're saying that it was a day after the coney barrett um nomination party uh that that 
they were all exposed as well. I wonder how many of them are going to be. And, you know, for this idiot to go back into the White House and not even stay in the residence, instead wander around over to the Oval, infecting people everywhere he went. I mean, it's just, it's criminal. Well, and, to, you know, the one, to be fair, I'd love to see lawsuits come out of this, you know, well, aimed well, to be fair, Dennis, they're, they're all losers and suckers anyway, right? Well, whatever, but it's not right. I mean, I know a lot of those people that work in the White House. They're lovely people, ushers and uh, members of the chef's staff and, you know, the cleaners, the gardeners, the people who are there and they've been there through many administrations, some of them 10, 20, 30 years working. And, you know, just to show up to work puts you at risk of becoming seriously ill or losing your life. It's just it, it's. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And he doesn't care. He got off of that helicopter, did the photo stunt, walked in, did another photo stunt, not wearing a mask. Staff members are everywhere. And um, anyways. <laughs> well, Dennis, thank you so very, very much. You're welcome. Uh, any final thoughts you want to leave our uh, American cousins with? Well, you know, keep the faith. The third is coming. Get out and vote. That's the most important thing you can do right now. Have a plan. My ballot has already arrived in Tennessee. I know it has already been counted. I got my two young kids, um, you know, 20 and 19, to vote this year. And uh, it's just absolutely critical that you cast a ballot. And it was their first ever presidential ballot. And, uh, you know, the more votes we get, the more our chances of winning, even in these crazy red states. And uh, I think that there's enough people out there that are fed up with him. You can't sit out and you can't vote third party because if you vote third party, you're handing a vote to Trump. And I'm sorry that that that's a horrible thing for a lot of your listeners to hear. But my God, if we don't get rid of this man, I'm not so sure the country will survive the next four years. Thank you again, my friend. You stay safe. And we're back with Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Hey there, Janine. Hey, Brooke. Uh, glad to be back. Well, this excerpt is actually has a title, Born in the USA, A Case of Medical Apartheid on Steroids. Nearly 10 days ago, Donald Trump was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital with an active case of COVID-19. He didn't have to wait to get a diagnostic test, as millions of Americans were forced to do for many months, and he received state-of-the-art medical care. He also received experimental medication only made available to 10 other people worldwide outside of the actual experimental trials. So he's now back on the campaign trail, even though overall medical consensus believes him to still be shedding a viral load and thus could transmit the disease to others, especially since he routinely refuses to wear a mask. And to add major insult to injury, all of his medical care is publicly funded. In other words, Donald Trump has benefited from the very socialized medicine he disparages and denies the rest of us. Not even doctors and nurses have been able to receive this type of care for themselves. And this story speaks to the state of medical apartheid in the USA and Trump's role in sustaining this injustice among so many others. 
If you presently enjoy Medicare, Medicaid, or the military's TRICARE, then you are a recipient of socialized medicine. Now in the age of COVID, the need is greater than before, and Trump has been criminally complicit in this disaster. If there ever was a situation that demonstrated the planned incompetence of the medical insurance industry, COVID is it. So we have this article from Common Dreams, and uh, it was written by Jessica Corbett, staff writer. And um, the title is, As Trump Gets Excellent Taxpayer-Funded Care, Analysis Finds Frontline Workers Disproportionately Lack Health Insurance, which is true. Uh, and this, was based, this report was based on a study that Public Citizen did. And Public Citizen's report said, quote, the argument for Medicare for All has never been stronger. So not only did Donald Trump receive rapid care and top-notch care the minute they showed any symptoms, so did uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. All right, Christie was in the room. He apparently was prepping Trump for the debate. But that's not the case for the frontline workers that we depend on routinely. And those aren't people that work at Wall Street. These are people in agriculture that are basically picking the crops and growing them, meatpacking, construction, restaurants, grocery stores, nursing homes, and home care. Many of them are far, like, far, like, excuse me, far likely to lack health insurance. Their access to care is quite limited. In fact, uh, Congresswoman Pramia Jayapal was quoted as saying, while Trump gets excellent tax, taxpayer-funded care, Millions of the frontline workers who are powering America are left without any care at all. This is unacceptable, end quote. And it's true. And look at the piggish behavior of Chris Christie. He prepped Donald Trump before his infamous debate last Tuesday. And he announced that on Twitter, quote, I checked myself into Morristown Medical Center this afternoon. While I'm feeling good and only have mild symptoms, Due to my history of asthma, we decided this is an important precautionary measure, end quote. Keep in mind, most Americans presenting, presenting severe COVID symptoms up till now have been turned away from hospitals and told to come back only if they aren't breathing. I wish that this were hyper, hyperbolic, but it's not. So the president and Chris Christie, they get top-notch care, all right? Again, it is on the taxpayer's dollar. It is socialized medicine. So let's talk about this public citizen report because it all kind of works together. So their report is entitled Holes in the Safety Net, and it really speaks to basically the fact that the social safety net has been basically destroyed and largely by the GOP ever since, I'd say, the Reagan administration. And so now what we're, there's echoes now for a public health care system that every civilized democracy has and also more demands from sing, uh, for single payer, which is kind of the same thing. So Representative Pramia Jayapal, who's a Democrat in Washington, she was the lead sponsor, by the way, of Medicare for all the legislation that was in the House. And again, she was quoted saying, quote, as Trump receives all-inclusive socialized health care at Walter Reed, essential workers are left to suffer, end quote. And the, the author of the holes in the um, holes in the safety net report is Zachary Brown from Public Citizen, and he also acknowledges that these 
these public sector, these workers in these essential areas are basically not only going without health care now, but they've all, it's always been like that. And it's really been, as he puts a quote, on the backs of significant numbers of black and brown workers, end quote. And they've also faced, uh, quote, low wages, lack of adequate safety precautions, and limited access to health care, end quote. And then, you know, basically Zachary Brown then concludes that the findings regarding how COVID impacts people in those various um, essential areas of our economy, um, you know, and he looks at their high uninsured rates. And he basically says the argument for Medicare for All has never been stronger. Um, and then he went down and he broke it down like half of all, oh, no, over half of all agricultural workers are uninsured. And because of that, on our farms here in the U.S., they've estimated that more than 130,000 workers have contracted the virus. Grocery workers, and again, their uninsured rate exceeds 12%. There's been over 11,000 cases. Um, let's see now. Meatpacking, the uninsured rate among meatpacking workers is 15.5%, and they have reported over 400,000 cases of COVID and 200 deaths. Construction, usually these aren't like, the in construction they're usually uh, contract workers. And of the contract workers in construction, 24% are uninsured, and there's been outbreaks uh, all across the country, and that includes D.C., Texas, and North Carolina. Nursing and home care, 12% of nursing home workers and 26% of home care workers are uninsured. And there's been tens of thousands of these workers that have come down with COVID and over 200 deaths. Restaurant workers, 27% of cooks and 22% of servers nationwide are uninsured. And they are at heavy risk because they are in close interaction, not only with each other, but with customers. And then the grocery store, about 12.1% are uninsured, and this report has said that at least 11,000 workers have been exposed. And so this goes on, and to quote Brown, the author of the report again, Zachary Brown, quote, just as the Trump administration has failed the country on COVID-19, the private health insurance system has failed essential frontline workers. These workers are risking their lives to ensure that we, we have access to the health care food, and other services we need. The least we could do as a society is to ensure they have health insurance so they don't go bankrupt when they get sick, end quote. And so, you know, once again, when you look at the breakdown, Brown estimated not only that, but these workers are they're low wage and they're often beneath the federal poverty line. And of the ones that are beneath the federal poverty line, it's one in four farm workers, 13% of meatpacking workers, and one in five home care workers. So, and then on top of that problem, these same workers are facing layoffs. And when you add to that a layoff, and because our health insurance is based on an employer system, employer-subsidized um, system, then when you lose your job, well, if you had insurance, you lose that too. Okay. It, it, and now we've looked at it, and the New York Times reported um, just recently that about 12 million people in the U.S. are now jobless, and that's doubled since last January, no matter what the Trump administration says. So we've got this issue going on here, and the holes in the safety net, um, uh, the holes in the safety net report is, is really it, it breaks it down quite nicely. All right, um, and 
you know, a lot of more affluent people, they don't understand where their food comes from. If grocery workers become sick and can't work, if farm workers can't work, if meat pick, then there is, you're going to run out of food. It doesn't just come magically. And so if you care about nobody but yourself, then you should care about keeping these workers healthy. Furthermore, you should care about other people. But that's what happened. And so this is, COVID has really exposed how hideous our for-profit medical care system is. So now, when you go back into common dreams, when you combine the present reality with the long-held goals from the GOP of Trump, you have what I call a perfect storm for the emergence of a mega genocide by medical neglect. And here's how Trump's GOP plans to deny all the non-rich, namely all of you, of medical care, while they give the mega-rich, the billionaire class, another massive tax cut. All right? And this has to deal with, it all kind of dovetails, this has to deal with the fact that they are determined to destroy the, uh, the ACA, Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. And Trump keeps saying that he has a plan. He has a plan. Well, he's had four years to produce a plan. Generally, when people have a plan, they're able to produce it. The only people that refuse, that can't produce a plan after four years of stalling are just plain liars and con men, in my opinion. So you've got to remember, they, they want to strike this out. It's one of the reasons why they're so desperate to get Judge Amy Coney Barrett on the SCOTUS, on the Supreme Court, because, again, she is likely to go along with basically destroying what's left of the ACA. And you have to remember, these enormous tax cuts, What's already what Trump has already allowed, and further tax cuts, they often result in cuts to basic services. Uh, they're not going to result in cuts to, say, the military, because the wealthy military-industrial complex won't tolerate cuts to their profits. So these tax cuts to billionaires like Jeff Bezos will come by cutting money to public services. That includes cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. So. This is basically Ken, Kenny Stansel, staff writer, wrote this. It's titled Successful GOP Reveal of the ACA, which strip health coverage from millions and give the top 0.1% a massive tax cut during a pandemic. Okay? And the tax cut for the richest, one hundredth of 1%. They would get a tax cut of $198,000 approximately. And Big Pharma would get a tax cut of $2.8 billion if they're able to destroy the Affordable Care Act. But millions of senior citizens are going to pay way more for their prescription drugs to the point they won't be able to afford it, and 20 million would lose their health insurance, and not to mention there would be probably savage cuts to Medicare itself. And so this is what they were talking about in this article, and there were several reports, and one of them, um, was written by Tara Straw and Avivo Aaron Dine, and it was prepared by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, or the CBPP. And what they said is, the state, quote, the stakes in this case are always extraordinarily high, um, and even higher now amidst a global pandemic and an economic crisis that has caused more people to lose health insurance and become eligible for help from the ACA. So if you're working now, and you lose your job, you're going to apply to the ACA and get coverage that way. But if the ACA is slashed, then you don't get it. But slashing, the, destroying the ACA will give billionaires another tax cut. But down the road, 
that extra budget is going to be made up, and that's going to be resulting in cuts to basic services. And for people in Florida, especially the elderly, that's going to result to cut, savage cuts to Medicare, no matter what Trump says. And in spite of all these warnings, Trump recently treated that killing the ACA in the middle of this pandemic, quote, would be a big win for the USA, exclamation point. Okay? He just... And he said he would replace Obamacare with something, quote, much better, end quote. But, again, he's produced nothing. Pence has produced nothing. The GOP, they have no plan. People with plans can produce them. They have no plan. And not a single A state. Well, I take that back. They did have a few plans they produced in Congress, but they didn't present to the public. And according to this, uh, to this report, so I stand corrected, not a single ACA alternative pushed by Trump and the GOP in Congress but not presented to the public. Not a single one of those would protect those with pre-existing conditions. So when Trump says, oh, we'll protect people with pre-existing conditions, no, he's lying. Okay? And that was according to this report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. In fact, there's a direct quote. It says, none of the supposed alternatives to the ACA offered by the Trump administration or congressional Republicans would protect people with pre-existing conditions. Again, I have to reiterate, these are plans that were presented in Congress to congressional committees. They have not been presented to the public. We're still in the dark. So that's part of it. And you have former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, um, who went further and explained which Americans would win and who would lose if the ACA were repealed, not only during a recession, but during this COVID pandemic. And Reich basically said this, quote, while the legal arguments against the law are extremely weak, um, let's see now, um, straw and Aaron, I'm sorry, I stand corrected. Basically, my bad. Okay, so Reich has said that the law, legal arguments against the law are extremely weak. And Straw and Aaron Dine, the authors of this report, also explain that um, the the fight to overturn the ACA has really been improved, unfortunately, because Justice Ginsburg passed away. And they, the Republicans are chomping at the book because they know Judge Amy has been critical of, quote, the Supreme Court's reasoning for upholding ACA in prior cases. So Judge Amy does have a record as being hostile to the ACA. And that leads into the fact that this GOP-led Senate Making Judge Amy's confirmation a priority is in part because she has already indicated in a few prior decisions that she disagrees with the reasoning that the ACA was based on, and she would most likely help to overturn it and destroy it. Um, and that's you know part of it also. And overturning the ACA would, as they would, as these authors said, would cause some 20 million people to lose coverage. And, quote, if the law were struck down during a recession, millions more would lose coverage with commensurately larger impacts on access to care, financial security, health outcomes, and racial disparities in coverage and access to care. Um, they were, Aaron Dye, Straw and Aaron Dye, the, the authors of this report, also said that if you were to repeal the ACA in the middle of this COVID pandemic, quote, would also impede efforts to address the public health crisis. Okay, and then to add to it, the report also said the ACA's protections for people with pre-existing conditions can make it harder for the more than 7 million people who've had COVID already to obtain affordable, comprehensive coverage in the future. 
They go on to say, not only would striking down the ACA directly harm tens of millions of Americans covered through the ACA marketplaces or benefiting from protections for people with pre-existing conditions, but it would also cause further damage because it would disrupt Medicare and it would interfere with the states being able to administer Medicare because, again, there's just not enough money to go around. So who would benefit from repealing the ACA? Well, the very rich and big pharma, okay? And again, uh, a, a senior health fellow, Judy Solomon, from the same, uh, same think tank, CDPP, said, this doesn't get the attention it should. Quote, if the Trump administration succeeds in overturning the ACA, not only will millions lose health coverage, but millionaires will get big tax cuts. Um, and end quote. And so they basically estimate that if the ACA struck down those with the highest income will get basically a windfall tax cut. The richest, the 0.1% with annual incomes of more than $3 million would receive tax cuts close to about 200000 a year. Households with incomes over $1 million would get about a $40,000 tax cut. And, you know, once again, the cost to the federal government of the, with, for, to the cost to the federal government of these tax cuts would be approximately $30 billion in 2020. $30 billion that would have to be replaced somehow. You know they're not going to cut the military budget. They're going to cut discretionary spending. They're going to cut schools. They're going to cut Medicare. Watch and see. That's my, that is my uh, prediction. Big Pharma would come out very well with this. Okay? And, you know, Reich, Robert Reich ended with a reminder that, quote, our tax-dodging billionaire president is getting publicly funded health care while his lawyers are in court trying to rip yours away, end quote. And it's very apropos. Now to give you a little more information, I'm going to have to go through this quickly. The Pew Research Center, hardly a liberal bastion, found a curious COVID demographic, and it coincides with Trump's decision to withhold vital information that could have saved lives. And what they found was, and this was back in May, all right, when the death toll was at a mere 100,000. But since the start of the outbreak, uh, up until recently, the death toll was concentrated in certain areas, large metropolitan areas, especially New York City. They were hit hardest. And what they found back in, in May, end of May, was that almost all of those congressional districts that were hit the hardest were represented by congressional Democrats. Now, that, that's not the case now because of extreme virus transmission and Frankly, stupidity. Many GOP Trump fans refuse to wear masks or socially distanced, but this was a case in May when Trump didn't care. And there was a new Pew Research Center analysis of data collected by John Hopkins, and there were 12 congressional districts all located in New York City. And uh, at that point, of the more than 92,000 to 100,000 who had died of COVID as of May 20th, that was when the data in this, in this analysis was collected, Nearly 75,000 were in Democratic congressional districts, and these were districts that also happened to have high concentration of communities of color and other minorities. You can't ignore this, all right? You just can't. And this was at the same time when the Trump administration, up till that point, had been refusing to send adequate amounts of PPE. They were refusing to send ventilators. Jared Kushner was, was telling them they have to spend their money more wisely and just basically... This, this policy of planned and premeditated indifference. 
it, it's evil, okay? It just is. And Bradley Jones was the actual research associate that dealt with that particular study, which we'll talk about a little more later. So we have a president who withheld adequate supplies of PPE and other critical needs while downplaying the dangerous nature of COVID. Some would say that the death rates in democratically controlled congressional districts are coincidence, but these are the same districts that begged for medical supplies, including PPE, for months, were denied any relief from the GOP of Trump. Now add another wrinkle. The role of white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups supporting Trump, according to internal documents from Homeland Security, these groups planned on using COVID as a biological weapon against communities of color, Jews, and ironically, the police. They advocated for infective members to become super spreaders. You can't make this stuff up. And this was something they, these groups are using an encrypted messaging app called Telegram, and they, they singled out these groups, and this was found out by DHS, and they were talking about plans such as leaving saliva on door handles if, they were, if these people are already infected. Um, so they, this may be one of the reasons why these groups are so eager to go to these, these, these meetings with, and these gatherings without any social distancing because they literally want to basically put saliva on, on elevator buttons, door handles, you name it. Um, some of them actually use spray bottles with some saliva in it, and the idea is to spread COVID and use it as a biological weapon. Okay, and in spite of this barrage of reports, DH, uh, the the FBI, they, they really haven't made this a priority, and that is truly frightening. And then you have a president who refused to denounce these same groups. So I'm going to get into my conclusion. As we enter the final stretch of this election season, Florida is once again front and center as a battleground state. Back in 2000, Floridians were robbed of a full recount by Brooks Brothers-clad GOP thugs actively engaging in voter suppression as they banged down the doors of a Florida election board attempting to complete a legally mandated recount. These privileged GOP thugs were determined to halt the recount in time for the Supreme Court to appoint George W. Bush as the next president. The actual rule of law was merely an irrelevant joke, even though many of this mob were attorneys. Now we've been made to suffer under Donald Trump for the past four years through what can only be called a criminal administration. Prior to COVID, he cut funding for the agency which conducted research internationally on viral illnesses, setting, setting us up for the next emergency, COVID-19. Then Trump then ignored daily national security briefings Warning about an emergency, and I'm sorry, warning about an emerging deadly virus that could take many lives worldwide. Once COVID hit, Trump refused to issue any directives to isolate the infected. Instead, he punted to the states while cutting funding for state requisitions of ventilators, medicines, and PPE. The list of crimes against Trump on the COVID front are numerous and well documented. Evidence from Trump's own admission in a series of 17 taped interviews he granted with journalist Bob Woodward. Trump knew the true nature of COVID by the end of January 2020. Trump admitted this to Woodward February 7, 2020. It was during this time that Trump chose to lie about the danger COVID posed. He knew that it was highly contagious and airborne. <clears throat> he knew it was deadly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yet he lied to the public and misled us into a false sense of relative safety. Now over 215,000 Americans are needlessly dead from COVID that we know of. Had Trump followed appropriate medical protocols, 
and told the American public the truth, current statistical models predict that some 75 to 80% of COVID deaths would have been prevented. We further discovered from the Pew Center that early on, congressional districts led by Democrats and also consisting of large minority communities were hardest hit. We cannot forget how months this administration failed to provide enough medical supplies, including PPE, especially to those same congressional districts. More and more, this administration's actions begin to resemble a planned genocide by premeditated neglect. Trump recently survived COVID himself. He received medical care, which has been denied most Americans, including those fully insured. Trump's COVID care was not the COVID care received by 95% of those afflicted. He received meds that most likely saved his life, and he received them rapidly. Unlike most Americans, he was not told to go home, lock the door, and die quietly alone. He received the treatment afforded a king on the citizen's dime while everyone else suffered. Then we discovered as recently as March of 2020 that DHS found evidence of white supremacists planning on using COVID as a biological weapon against communities of color, Jews, and ironically, the police. They planned on infecting as many as possible, an act of genocide. Even though the story broke in March, Trump has done nothing to stop this movement. In fact, recently seemed to signal to them his support by telling them to stand by during a televised debate. These groups interpreted this statement as Trump intended, a green light to attack once the time was right. Not only did Trump incite violence against racial and religious minorities, women, immigrants, and the LGBTQ communities, but he cut funding for the very agencies tasked with investigating domestic terrorism of the single group most responsible for that domestic terrorism, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. In conclusion, it is Trump's, it, it is not totally Trump's fault that we continue to have this for-profit medical care system that demands so many suffer. It is not totally Trump's fault that COVID arrived at our shores. It is Trump's fault that he lied about the true nature of this of this killer. It is Trump's fault that he misled the public and many refused to mask or socially distance, thus exacerbating COVID spread. It is Trump's fault that he censored his CDC and as many other scientific and medical professionals on the truth regarding COVID. It is Trump's fault that business people ran the show as opposed to scientists and medical doctors. And finally, it is Trump's fault that over 215,000 Americans died alone in agony. Donald and from medical neglect, Donald Trump and his GOP accomplices are guilty of premeditated, negligent homicide at a genocidal level. Every single one of them must be voted out of office, followed by federal and state-level indictments for crimes against humanity. No matter what any of us think of Joe Biden, all of us need to vote for him as if our lives depend on it, because they do. And Florida plays a crucial role. Vote Trump out, and then let's make Biden enact Medicare for all. Otherwise, the next COVID may end this country for good. And that's my report. Wow, Janine. As always, just amazing. Thank you so much for that. There was a lot in there that uh, if you have any uh, um, links that you want me to put in the show notes, send them to me, and I will get those up because that, that was fascinating, and I would love to read more. And you're so right. And uh can't wait to listen again next week. I always look forward to your pieces. They're so, so well done. Thank you. Thank you. Right. And next week on JR, we're going to be talking more about um, the treaties and how these treaties have hurt not only communities of color, but these, these trade treaties through ISDS have hurt the environment by preventing communities from 
having their laws respected. They're just set aside by arbitration okay. panels. Super duper. All right. Well, we look forward to that next week. And, uh, you know, as we inch toward the election, this is just uh, this is where we're at. And we'll just keep reporting yep. and got our fingers crossed. And we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.